You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This week, I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor along with Romain Bostic and Joe Weisenthal. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we took a look at the unequal economic recovery that is emerging from the coronavirus downturn and steps that some politicians and policymakers are trying to take to close that gap. One of the new and innovative policy prescriptions being offered is baby bonds. The alliterative term was introduced to most people by New Jersey Senator Cory Booker during his run for president in the Democratic primary. Now his home state is trying to put the idea into action. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy proposed a statewide baby bonds initiative as part of his 2021 fiscal year budget where the state would provide $1,000 deposit for each newborn as long as the family income was less than $131,000 a year, or 500% of the federal poverty level. According to the state's budget presentation, when these residents turn 18, they can withdraw these funds to help them pursue higher education, buy a home, start a business, or pursue other wealth-generating activities. We dove into the idea with two key experts in the field. First, we spoke with Derek Hamilton, the Henry Cohen Professor of Economics and Urban Policy at the New School, an internationally recognized pioneer in the field of stratification and economics. We started by asking him about how he sees baby bonds as an interim step to reparations. Reparations and baby bonds are complementary. Reparations is a direct, parsimonious approach to address the racial wealth gap. Um, And it's a retrospective approach that recognizes the injustices of the past and calls upon the U.S. to atone for that with some redress. Whereas baby bonds in perpetuity ensures that everybody has access to capital irrespective of their gender and race. So you can see how both policies would complement one another. Professor, talk to me a little bit more about those baby bonds. I like the idea. I think there are some concerns about how this realistically gets through in a state like New Jersey. How do you see it actually playing out um, in terms of being a realistic plan that's enforceable and that works? Yeah, and you know what? We say baby bonds for alliteration. If we were literal, they would be accounts, baby accounts or trust accounts. As opposed to a bond, but I love the alliteration. Um, but to answer your question, the ways in which both Cory Booker and Ayanna Presley de- de- defined their bills in the Senate and House, respective, 
was that the account would be augmented on a yearly basis based on the family economic circumstances that particular year. So I think the way to conceive of the New Jersey program is a down payment. Now, of course, states and localities, they are constrained fiscally in ways that the federal government is not because the federal government's a sovereign monetary power. But I love the way the governor of Jersey explained this as a down payment and that he reserves the right to come back to these accounts on an annual basis. And the down payment, of course, is to then have a trust, build up a trust fund in some sort of way to be able to finance bigger purchases, whether it be invest in your education, whether it be able to put a deposit on a house. How much do you think that would help offset what we see as gross inequality within the US economy that is very tough to try and focus on, whether it's from a fiscal persuasion or indeed from a monetary policy persuasion? Dramatically. I mean, the, the, if the accounts are properly resourced, the source of inequality in general in America is some young adults have access to an account that will passively appreciate over their life, an asset that will passively appreciate, like being a homeowner as opposed to a renter, being a entrepreneur with some capital to start a business as opposed to a worker, or being in a managerial or professional occupation without the albatross of student debt. So this is saying that as a birthright, let's ensure everybody has some seed capital so that they can benefit from an asset that will passively appreciate over their life. Professor, what are the benefits of state by states doing this versus having a federal program? As you said, federal being a sovereign nation has unlimited, in theory, borrowing capacity, what not be it, versus on a state by state cases. Yeah, I mean, uh, states shouldn't wait. Like again, the, the New Jersey governor is saying, we are not gonna wait, we are gonna be proactive. But the end solution to solving it has to come from the federal government. We can see places like California, their leadership in our um, environmental protection. So they led before the federal government and then the federal government followed. So I think New Jersey taking this bold initial first step, positions children born in New Jersey um, with an opportunity to generate assets, and then hopefully other states will emulate it. And then the final point would be for the federal government to take this upon. It's so interesting you bring up California's leadership, not only because my co-anchor is from California, but also because California lawmakers today are proving racial quotas for corporate boards as well. This feeling that there's inequality in terms of representation in corporate America as well as on the streets and in terms of police brutality. I'm interested in Really, when do you ever see a political appetite for what you are more long-term thinking of, which is the case for reparations, which you say works so hand-in-hand hand with the sort of focus on an account for babies? I do. I mean, if we were to think about where we are with reparations today compared to where we are were perhaps four years ago, there's been dramatic progress. It is topical in conversation. In the Democratic primary, all the candidates were held accountable based on their position, at least on H.R. 40. So, um, one, we've come a long way. And two, it's a just policy. So that, to me, is enough reason to commit to it. How are you thinking about who would manage these accounts? I'm thinking broadly about Social Security, where if we stop paying into Social Security, there's a lot of concerns that there isn't going to be money left to pay out. How then are you thinking about this is a great idea? How do you manage it and make sure that it is used for the benefits at which it was supposed to be and that it is managed appropriately? Yeah. 
you know, many of our policies are always politically vulnerable. One of the good things about Social Security that makes it less politically vulnerable is the impact it has had and the fact that people are already receiving the accounts. So once, if we get to a point where baby bonds are starting to expend, go out, and um, they're properly resourced, it will be harder to go back politically. Um, but just like Social Security, baby bonds would be managed by the state. So somewhat ironically, it's intended to protect children from the decisions of their parents, as well as the economic circumstance of their family. Of their family. We haven't talked a lot about gender, but we know within households there's patriarchy and probably decisions about which child, male or female, might get what type of inheritance or down payment. Well, this says as a birthright, the state will reserve this for you when you become an adult as a child, period. Um, and, and then one last point is, if you think about Social Security, one of America's most popular programs and perhaps successful public policy program, we have stuff for people when they age into the twilight of their life, but nothing for young adults beyond subsistence programs when they are coming of age and beginning a lifetime of building economic security. That's what baby bonds is intended to do. It's not an income policy, but rather intended to address wealth so that we can begin a bridge to social security of building a lifetime of economic security from birth, cradle, mm. all the way to grave. Then we continued the conversation with Naomi Zodi, an assistant professor at the Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy at City University of New York. Naomi is also a research fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and authored a paper back in 2018 citing universal baby bonds as a way to reduce black-white wealth inequality. We started by asking her what amount of money the baby program would need to provide to really move the needle on the racial wealth gap. So the New Jersey bill, like you said, it's small, but it's something, and that is huge. Um, I think that ideally, you know, when we're talking about the magnitude of wealth inequality, uh, there is one problem, which is that most of the wealth is held by just a few people uh, who own, you know, who control like large corporations. Um, but then we have another problem in wealth inequality, which is along the racial lines, where at the median, right in the middle, the median white household holds in the United States 10 times the wealth of the median black household. And we're looking at around 170,000 versus about 17,000. So if we're thinking about baby bonds that are going to close the racial wealth gap or just kind of the gap in like the kinds of resources that households have access to along racial lines, I think that we need to be thinking about that kind of magnitude, mm. like $50,000. Interesting. So an order of magnitude larger than what Governor Murphy was talking about. We were lucky enough to not only have you on the show, but earlier we spoke with Derek Hamilton, of course, who's been proposing reparations in particular to fix what has been an, a lack of wealth quality going back to slavery, but also talking about baby ones as well. He was in particular focused on perhaps the source of inequality. The source of inequality in general in America is some young adults have access to an account that will passively appreciate over their life an asset that will passively appreciate, like being a homeowner as opposed to a renter, being a entrepreneur with some capital to start a business as opposed to a worker, or being in a managerial or professional occupation without the albatross of student debt. So this is saying that as a birthright, let's ensure everybody has some seed capital 
so that they can benefit from an asset that will passively appreciate over their life. Naomi, the 50,000 you talk of, where do you think it's going to be best put to work? Is it in education? Will it even be able to afford education in come 10, 20 years time? That's right. So if the cost of higher education continues to increase at the pace that it has for the past 20 or 30 years, no. I mean, $50,000 is like one year of tuition and maybe room and board at, at, at many universities around the country. So, and that's today. You know, 20 years from now when these, you know, babies end up uh, taking control over these accounts, who knows how much higher education is going to cost. Uh, it, it could also cost, you know, one trip to the hospital it could, you know, you could end up really having to consume it under a number of different, you know, if we don't have control over the cost of basic uh, living expenses like education, healthcare, and housing, um, it could, it, it has the potential to not, you know, to not kind of, it, it would work best in conjunction with um, laws that like strengthen all of these parts of our society. In your vision for how it would work, who has access to the money? Is it the baby when they turn 18? Is it the parents during that time? How do you structure that, uh, structure that contract, essentially, between the state giving the money and the recipient of it? So I think this is difficult because so many parents are like, might need that money today. Right for their children and they have immediate needs throughout that time, like we were just talking about in terms of food shortages. Um, but then at the same time, you know, what this program is supposed to be is that is that nest egg that you can use to leap forward, like what Derek Hamilton had been talking about. So, you know, income, it comes in every month and you meet it to meet your ongoing needs and expenses. But when you want any kind of change, like purchasing a home, starting a business, even just moving to another city. You know, these are like kind of the extraordinary expenses that you have wealth in the background for. And for it to function for that purpose, it kind of needs to stay in place, you know? And so there's the question of once they become an adult, should there be some kinds of restrictions on how they can use that money or should they be allowed to consume it even if we do wait until they're an adult? And I think that the jury is out on that question. Um, Maybe people have enough kind of wherewithal to make those decisions for themselves. You know, how much can we really guide the, the extent to which this money ends up really being used as a nest, nest egg for investment into the future? Um, but I think that, like, because the household isn't putting the money in themselves, it's being put there on their behalf. It's, we can kind of, um, we can put, I think, at least that much of a restriction that they can just wait until they're young adults and, and, and come into this money, know that it's there when they're growing up, that it's there for their future and have some plans for how they can best maximize their returns. Given your thought leadership on this, the paper you wrote back in 2018, did you envisage this coming from a federal level? And do you think that it needs the states to own it to force the hand of the federal government really before we can make sure that this is something that crosses across the United States? I think that we should um, try to get good, good legislation passed, whether it's at the state or at the federal level. And it's a good thing that the state of New Jersey and the governor in particular is taking some leadership on this. Um, and Cory Booker has been doing that at the Senate level. I think that when we're talking about the scale that's necessary uh, to make progress on the racial wealth gap, and on wealth inequality in general, most likely that's going to come from the federal level, just because they don't have the same kinds of balanced budgets restrictions that a state government budget might have. So it's likely that when we're talking at the scale needed, you know, it might end up being federal. But actually, there's a lot of movements that states can make in the meantime, both on baby bonds and on a lot of different kinds of, you know, legislation that eventually will have to be federal. Things like, you know, when Canada finally uh, had Medicare for all in their 
country. It started in one province. You mm. know? So a lot of times, even these big national kinds of legislation can can really start with a lot of leadership and, and really get moving at the state level too. So I think that this is a is, if anything, potentially a harbinger of things to come. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Lawmakers are not the only ones trying to ameliorate the economic pain being felt amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Global central bankers are trying to chart the path to recovery using their monetary policy toolbox. We spoke about the response ahead of the Jobs Day with Viral Acharya, He's the former Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank of India. We started by asking him what grade out of 10 he would give monetary policy makers on their job thus far. Uh, I would say 7.5 to 8. Uh, they've done an excellent job of accommodating the short-run concerns. Uh, they've gone through the ember light very decisively. Uh, extending the support uh, even to markets, which is something that typically Federal Reserve doesn't do that easily. Uh, that certainly calmed the nerves uh, right at the time of the outbreak of the pandemic. Uh, but the question is whether it has gone a bit too far. And some of the yields that you are seeing in the markets or even extremely risky corporate debt are so low that there seems to be a very significant uh, disconnect uh, between the underlying health of the corporates, uh, the fact that everyone is projecting fairly high corporate default rates, uh, possibly even zombies, uh, sort of walking dead companies in the economy, and the fact that they are actually able to continue to leverage up their balance sheets uh, at extremely low yields. And it's precisely because of this concern of credit risk and how that might play out in the economy down the line that I fall short of giving it a 9 or a 10. So when we talk about, I guess, the the response that we've gotten out of policymakers here, uh, there's also this sense here that there's been a lot more coordination this time around in this recession versus past recessions of fiscal policy and monetary policy. There has been sort of a melding of this. We've seen some countries take it to the extreme, like in Indonesia, and we've seen countries here in the U.S. sort of nibble around the edges with it. Are there distortion risks here that we need to be worried about as investors as to this type of coordination? Uh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in economics, there's a concept called fiscal dominance. Uh, what that means is that when the government's borrowing programs become so large uh, that to keep rolling them over year after year, it's going to become very costly, uh, possibly even difficult. Uh, maybe it might even lead in some cases to a risk of default. Uh, that in such situations, the central bank gets fiscally dominated, meaning that it starts focusing exclusively in its monetary policy on helping the government roll over the debts rather than focusing on its long-run price stability inflation objectives. Now, fiscal dominance uh, is a feature that has been very common in emerging markets along the lines you mentioned. Uh, it's something that I talk about quite a bit uh, in my recent book, A Quest for Restoring Financial Stability in India. But I think we are likely to see it hit the shores of uh, developed uh, economies very soon. In fact, one could argue that what the European Central Bank has effectively done in the last six, seven years is to play a quasi-fiscal role to help some of the periphery countries deal with their debts. Now, why is this important? This is important because right now, 
in some ways there are some supply side cost pressures building up especially in emerging markets causing inflation to rise on the other hand because of weak demand and discretionary spend mm -hmm. there are also deflationary forces the question is when we come out of the pandemic and the private is willing to grow again uh, invest again get credit from the banks uh, at that point will the central banks now become fiscally dominated in which case they will allow inflation to run away and just continue to print money to roll over government debts so we could end up with a high inflation scenario as an exit route yeah. or we see financial repression in which basically the private sector is not allowed to get the credit and then we could see deflationary pressure so i think the risks from policy have risen very substantially because of the huge fiscal overhang in both developed and emerging markets are those risks that you've seen being reflective in these negative real rates i'm actually curious what you see when you see negative real rates across the us across europe and in some cases and i'm looking at switzerland and germany when i say this real nominal negative rates as well. Yeah, I think by and large, these conditions have led to a search for yield amongst the savers. Uh, and if the fixed income instruments are also giving very repressed yields at the long end, because of large quantitative easing programs, direct interventions in the bond markets, including in corporate bond markets, then it's natural that some spillover of this froth or search for yield will actually uh, carry over to the equity markets as well. So while it is still too early to give definitive rigorous evidence on this, uh, at my end, I have no doubt that the disconnect between the real economy and the stock markets has something to do with this search for yield, which is happening in the equity markets at present. So, uh, Dr. Acharya, you, I, I want to ask you specifically for a second here about India. You, of course, you are the former uh, deputy governor there or over at the Reserve Bank. And, you know, you came to a lot of people's attention, at least outside of India, when you gave that speech a couple of years ago about central bank independence, but more importantly, about some of the stresses in the banking sector. And when you look at the state of India's banking sector right now, you look at some of the stresses in the corporate sector there, and you look at the contraction that we've seen in the economy. What steps do you think that the government there can take at this stage to dig itself out of that hole? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, in, in, in the preface chapter of my book, I give a very explicit blueprint, but let me focus on two or three key ideas from there. Uh, one idea is that India's financial stability can no longer be separated from the stability of the fiscal situation because the fiscal deficits had been rising, growth had been slowing down, even in the pre-COVID phase for about uh, three years. Uh, what that means is that India needs to actually create a medium-term path of credible fiscal outcomes. Uh, this cannot just mean that you spend your way uh, out of the current problem, because if growth doesn't recover as well, then debt to GDP ratios could start getting into fairly uh, treacherous uh, territory. Uh, so India needs, in my opinion, an independent uh, bipartisan fiscal council. Uh, it's, this would be the equivalent of a congressional budget office, which is actually nonpartisan. It's not even bipartisan. Uh, and I think this should actually hold a mirror to the government's progress on fiscal consolidation going forward. Uh, and India needs to really come out clean exactly on what is its total government borrowing requirement between the center, 
the states, the uh, government-owned enterprises of various types, because unless you know exactly where the situation is right now, it's hard to know what should be a calibrated medium-term path. So the need of the hour is to undertake the necessary expenditures for relief and repair in the short run, but do so without actually spooking the markets, the rating agencies and investors. And that can be done only if you give a medium term path of fiscal consolidation. Now, coming to your question of indebted corporates mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, hole in the banks because of the likely mounting non-performing assets, I say when you invest in real estate, it's location, location, location. When you want to stabilize your financial sector, it's capital, capital, capital. I think India needs to ask its banks to raise capital on a war footing. Equity markets are benign in a relative sense. The global capital flows are benign. I think this would be a perfect time to shore up bank balance sheets with capital. In case of public sector banks, some significant divestments will have to take place by the government to put the stakes below 50% in many cases and perhaps reprivatize some of the healthier public sector banks uh, as a result of the fiscal stretch that's out there. Dr. Acharya, it's a question that these, us on our show producers, we're asking ourselves time and time again at the moment as to the two-pronged nature of the recovery we're likely to see, basically the unequal nature the fact that we will see even more distortions in the market. We see it in the stock market reaching ever more record highs. Meanwhile, we know the fear of many as they continue to be unemployed. We start to see some of the fiscal support tail off. How worried are you? How, what actions can be taken, do you think, to steady this, to ensure that the recovery from this financial crisis, this economic crisis, doesn't drive inequality as we saw back in 2008, 2009? Yeah, uh, it's a, I think it's a terrific uh, set of questions. Uh, uh, see, I have a slightly contrarian view on this. Uh, usually when one enters a large shock of this type, uh, everyone's focus is on putting together immediate relief, band-aid uh, sort of uh, relief to the symptoms. And, you know, that's important. Uh, but I think you've got to realize that uh, COVID is a very fundamental shock. It has accelerated some of the trends that were already underway in terms of how the economy is using its productive capacity. Uh, while at the same time, it's a very large shock to some of the services sectors, which are going to take a minimum of three to four years, such as in case of airlines, to come back to their pre-COVID uh, levels of health. So in my view, the time should not be uh, deployed only to work on relief measures. This is a great time to actually undertake the missing structural reforms. Uh, I would say even in developed economies, investments in infrastructure have not been that great. So if we are actually going on a big fiscal overstretch, does it make sense to provide all of it uh, entirely as immediate relief? Or should some of it be used to actually build infrastructure and create jobs uh, for the economy in the meantime? I would, I, I would raise the same question for emerging mm -hmm. markets. There are land labor reforms that need to be undertaken in a number of these countries. And this could be a perfect time so that as and when we recover out of COVID, the private sector can also actually start growing where there would be ease of doing business and you and you have the growth impulses and momentum that are required. I, I've, my, my fear is that when we come out, we would have done so much repair and so little long-term growth uh, sust uh, sustained momentum uh, that, you know, it may be harder to actually create jobs when you come out. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we also took a look at some of the companies looking to turn this downturn into an opportunity. DraftKings is the site that lets sports fans legally gamble through fantasy sports contest, and it started trading as a public company back in April after a reverse merger with Diamond Eagle Acquisition Corporation. Since then, shares have more than doubled, even the hiatus for professional sports. Well, now the company has gotten a major boost from one of the world's most famous athletes, whose own love of gambling once threatened to overshadow his own career. Six-time NBA champion Michael Jordan is receiving an equity interest in DraftKings in exchange for his role as a special advisor to the online sports betting company's board of directors. And it's a move that sent the company's high-flying shares even higher. We spoke about the deal with Matt Kadish, DraftKings co-founder and president of North America, and started by asking him what the company hopes to get out of the NBA legend's advisory role. We're really excited to, to have Michael Jordan join as a strategic advisor to the board. You know, I'm a board member. I oversee our marketing and brand building operations. I think he's one of the geniuses in terms of you know, brand building. He's a marketing genius. He's built an iconic uh, image and brand around himself and, and brought that to millions. Uh, it's an entire cultural movement, really. And I think that just being able to collaborate, work with Michael on our different business initiatives, our marketing, our brand, uh, and just the day-to-day interaction will really help elevate what we're doing on all aspects of the way we go to market and connect with our customer. He added a billion to your monopolization, so clearly the market were excited by what he could provide. Talk to us about the focus on marketing and how competitive it is out there at the moment, Matt, because you've got new entrants into the market. You've always been up against the likes of FanDuel, but we've also got Penn's Barstool entering proceedings. And in previous years, there has been a worry that there's been too much focused on marketing, too much spent on marketing. Is that going to be a worry, a key concern, or is it with the likes of Michael Jordan that you can get a little bit more focused? No, I mean, DraftKings is a performance marketing company. We invest where we believe we can get a a great return on the marketing investments that we're making. The sports betting uh, expansion in the United States has dramatically increased our customer LTVs in those markets. Uh, And then in some markets where there's casino offerings and other things, all of that just adds up to a really, really valuable customer that we're chasing after. And there's millions and millions of them throughout the entire country. So we believe our culture of analytics, performance marketing, and and using that framework to go to market and invest uh, aggressively but up to our limits uh, in customer acquisition is the right formula to win long term. We have eight years of experience doing that in fantasy, and now we're just applying that into sports betting and, uh, and casino. How much of that spending is also trying to capture the customer's attention while you have them? Of course, many people are working from home, and so they're feeling like gambling and sports betting is something that they have time for. And are you worried about a shift if we do end up going back to work, how you continue to capture that attention? Yeah, I mean, it's a day in, day out effort to make sure that we understand the context around what's going on in sports and that we're staying relevant and connecting with the customer. You know, last year at this time, there wasn't NBA playoffs, there wasn't Major League Baseball, and our team is very scrappy and hungry to go out and, and attract and retain 
you know, every last skin in the game sports fan out there in the United States. So, you know, that's what we do. We're a content company first and everything we put out there to drive engagement and retention of uh, that audience that's so coveted right now. Uh, Matt, why, why a physical location? I mean, you announced this deal with uh, uh, across the street from Wrigley Field, and as a, a kid who uh, grew up uh, running around the grandstands at Comiskey Park, I won't fault you for going to the north side rather than the south side. But beyond that, I, I can't understand for a business that has been so successful with regards to its app and its online presence, what does having a physical location bring to you? DraftKings has announced, you know, our official partnership with the Cubs, which makes us the official sports betting partner in this multi-year agreement. I think a crown jewel of that agreement is the rights to build a retail sports book, which is really going to be, uh, you know, a flagship destination sports book in the heart of Wrigleyville. Uh, we're in the process now of collaborating with the IGB, the Illinois Gaming Board, uh, as well as the city and state officials to make sure that we can get our plan approved and break ground. And I believe that DraftKings, you know, as a part of that community, we can really add a lot, add a lot to the experience of going to a Cubs game, you know, stop by the book, make a couple bets, go in, cash them on your way out. You know, it could really add a lot to the experience that I think millions of, of fans are looking for. Uh, but we want to do it the right way. We want to build great relationships in the city and collaborate with the gaming board and make sure that that's a fantastic relationship all the way through. And abide by the ways and means in which legalization is unfolding. And Illinois has some of these niche ways in which it's decided to help you, well, the way in which you've decided to go for boots on the ground and, and a bricks and mortar location. I'm interested in the one of 10 states you're in, of course, is Illinois. What about going forward, the legalization pattern that you're seeing? Are you seeing more states wanting to get involved, particularly as we see so many of their revenues hit hard at the moment throughout the COVID crisis? Yeah, the news is coming in fast and furious, I would say, around sports betting, whether it's uh, Virginia, Michigan, uh, you know, states are all talking about whether or not they want to regulate and open up the market for sports betting operators like DraftKings to enter. And I think there's a ton of merit to the idea of opening it up. First, you know, there's already a very vibrant black market around sports betting, and DraftKings is really just bringing in the uh, regulated safe-to-play market, the same product that millions are already playing today. Uh, the benefits in terms of job creation, tax revenue in the state uh, at a time, especially like now where so many states are feeling the pinch uh, from coronavirus and the, and the lessening of economic activity in the state and tax generation, you know, that's really brought uh, uh, opportunities like sports betting to the forefront. Everyone's talking about it, but there's so many issues out there. So it's really a state-by-state -state rollout. And uh, we're just looking forward to seeing what comes next. We're a very agile company. We can get up and running within you know, days or weeks of announcements of, of what different states would like to do on the sports betting issue. And we're eager to serve the customers in those markets as they open up. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close Show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.